Yes. Okay. Hello, everybody. I hope that we're coming in loud and clear on YouTube for book club session three. Uh, I I think I think we are. I see that looking good. People are starting to 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 greet us all. So yes, here we are. Let me take that off the screen. It is Book Club C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, Session 3 of 4. Session 3 of 4. It has been quick. It has been clean. And uh, and here we are again. My co-host, my companion for this journey through this book is Timothy Gordon. Tim, how you feeling tonight? I'm so good. Frank, so good. So excited to talk about these chapters. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So as far as as far as general thoughts, uh, just to jump right on into it, it was chapter 10, chapter 11. Uh, do you want to give any uh, just general thoughts about, about all of this stuff? And then I'll give you some thoughts and then we'll just jump right into what people in the thread are saying. First and only general thought is this is the next level inner inside baseball christian attack uh psychological attack uh, in chapters 10 and 11 on secular good guys on the idea of the carl ronner's idea of the anonymous christian and and c.s lewis goes really really hard psychologically at people that that you know think carl ronner had a, a good idea here on secular love divorced from God, who's the source of love and, and stuff like that. So it was really, I wasn't expecting him to go this hard. It was really insightful stuff. Yes. Yeah, there is. I, uh, for me, let's see where, where I can go with this one. I mean, and especially as we now stare in the face the last week of this book, I think it should be obvious to most people where uh, this this book is going. And especially where it was going early on. Uh, this is a, for me at least, a wonderfully imaginative depiction of the afterlife, both as physical locations and as a sort of obstacle course for spiritual purification. You know, um, almost as if we need to be deloused, that we need to clean our feet, take the shoes off before we enter the house, or else we'll track mud onto the carpet. And uh, some people just don't want to take the shoes off. And it's a, a very tongue-in-cheek invitation for us to examine the things that we hold on to in life or have misattributed, as we see in 10 and 11, things that we have even misattributed as virtue. Um, the, the, we, we got this ghost of the obsessive mother who clearly sees her son as a possession but insists it's love unlike anything other par any other parent has ever felt before. And then dom the domineering wife who essentially committed murder, the murder of her husband for snuffing out his very will to live. And, uh, and, and we also got a lot of that, um, I believe in a God of love nonsense in there too, which is still one of the biggest things that a person who wants to rationalize all of their self-serving behavior as, as being in line with God's will. Essentially, this is what people on earth, the secularists or people who not, yeah, very secular, uh, that want to invoke God to be able to essentially create their own religion, wherein it's always very conveniently centered around the perpetuation of one vice or another because right. it, it makes them feel good and a God is a God of love and accepting and, and whatever. And, but um, other than that, Tim, I don't think that there's going to be any bombshells really coming in the final pages because at least this was to me clearly meant as, a, uh, as an exercise of self-reflection and sometimes uncomfortable self-reflection, but, but still it, it's a, uh, it's it's not a, a Vatican thriller like Windswept House. It's something equally powerful, but go, taking a different path. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a. I, I mean, I wasn't. I've never read it before. You have. I wasn't expecting ten and eleven to go so so deep into the attack because I, I you know I'd, I'd falsely juxtapose this from being utterly utterly a doctrinal. I, I thought, hey, you know, Lewis is. I always look at him as a poor man's Tolkien when it comes to fiction, but I, I really have been impressed as we've gone along. I think I think he really is 
you know, for, for creating Chronicles of Narnia, that is poor man's LOTR Middle Earth universe, but his essays are really good. And I, um, I've only read one other work by him and his essays have really impressed me. And I, I'm surprised he went so deep one on, I mean, in, in 10, 11, we get a full throated attack on 20th century feminism oh. in, in, both its major forms, the nag wife and the nag mother. <laughs> and uh, and like you said, there there is a fulfillment of the promise that Lewis makes earlier in the book to attack any form of paganism. Paganism is when we love the creature over the creator. And we talked about this in the first week. People even paganize, deify, reify their relationships in in otherwise well-ordered ways and that's what we really get to in in a pretty impressive uh way in chapter 11 with the deification of one's secular relationship an unconverted mother's love will bring her to hell in a harder core way than even the love of pornography or something like that there's some great line in in chapter 11 and that 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 really just impressed me how deep he went on psychology here. Oh, and we, we have got to, I'm sure, I haven't looked at the thread yet, but I'm sure somebody's going to be talking about the whole scene with the lizard and the horse, which is, wow. Good. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is just, uh, if there is anything, if I ever heard that someone like Mel Gibson was going to, was going to try to bring this to screen with all of the imagery that could be painted and brought to see. If I ever heard that someone was going to put some production powers behind bringing this to life in an honest way, I would be incredibly excited. I, whether they let us down or not, I don't know. But for someone to attempt to bring this to life on screen would be amazing because what's in my head is just something. And, and you know, uh, chapter 10, it opens up like this. Uh, quite, quite, quite out of the question, said a female ghost to one of the bright women. I should not dream of staying if I'm expected to meet Robert. I'm ready to forgive him, of course, but anything more is quite impossible. How he comes to be here, that is your affair. I forgive him as a Christian, said the ghost, but there are some things one can never forget. Uh, so that it's, it opens up just like that, and I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot. I'll forgive you, but I... I'm never going to forget this, and it, it just sounds, uh, and I understand how hard it is to forget and to not have experiences in life be ingrained in you, uh, especially when one person has done you wrong once or twice, and you, your, your faith is really shaken in them. But that whole, how can you forgive someone, uh, what's the difference between forgiving someone as a Christian and at the same time holding on to all of this unforgiveness it's a obviously an oxymoron yeah i'll forgive but i won't forget this is by play for i'm not really going to forgive uh, you know i mean when you're really basically supposed to forget things that you've forgiven it doesn't mean you can't look back on them later in justice and say hey remember you, you do this all the time with a healthy relationship with with your spouse you know it's like hey remember we used to when we were first dating we used to have these little arguments we worked on that that, that was a weakness of mine combining with a weakness of yours i basically forgotten about it. it doesn't mean like forever it's expunged from your memory it just means <laughs> it just means that it's not at the front of your brain so there's a lot of a lot of byplay going on here a lot of attacking uh, of um feminist tropes and i, I don't i don't mean hardcore, you know, first, second, third wave feminism of the sort I attack in, in my book on feminism. I mean, lower key feminist tropes that are, are little, little fudges that sometimes, uh, particularly all people, but the ladies let themselves get away with. Lewis is just going after it so hard. Yeah. You know, the nag wife even, um, uh, who says that her nagging enriched her husband or something right. like that. She says that, um, her nagging made him a better man. And, uh, you know, her substitutions for all of his desiderata, all the things he loved, she made him trade him out. I mean, I, kn I know so many like men like this that are just low-key 
feminized by a nagging wife. This is actually most guys you meet in the suburbs don't have a, a lovely helpmate, handmaiden wife. And um, they literally rationalize it like this. And I, I love that she wants to continue nagging him even after his death. And this is the creaturely love that she's substituted for love of the creator that is ultimately going to keep her in hell is that she wants to keep nagging. Yes. And, and, and not only that, she wants, if it wasn't Robert, she'd like to be assigned, she'd be signed something else. She wants to fix. She believes that she wants, she wants to be given things and people to fix. But, uh, but again, th there is that disconnect between a person who actually believes that they're doing good that, okay, I'll do this for you, but but what they're really doing is killing everybody. They're killing. They're choking off all the joy out of everyone, and that's why I said it's essentially a murder. Because when you see, he's been her her uh, her earthly husband has been pushed to the brink of where he has given up all of his passion projects, all of his 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 willingness and his uh, desires to write uh, everything to be able to work him to the bone and get him out there and working in in, in uh, and hitting the pavement to make sure they can have a bigger house than the one they had and to to completely swap out all of his friends for ones that she approves of to the point where at the end when he had a little bit of a nest egg to rest on and he was looking glum and depressed and despondent she even suggests why don't you start writing again and he just doesn't even want to do it anymore and right. uh, I, I i can i i mean there is that in i i could infer from this chapter that when he found out that she had arrived on the bus in heaven that he probably asked please don't let me go so let somebody else go please i i, I had to infer that uh, it, it's just as a as a little bit of humor too that he wouldn't be the one that had shown up um he probably just was just like please send somebody else <laughs> I mean, it's it's it, if you don't laugh, you cry. Yeah. And I'm just saying, man. I mean, look, I ain't trying to get into a whole sidetrack on feminism, but I just you just meet so many men in the suburbs that are leading these lives of Thorovian quiet desperation to these nags of wives, and um, it it just it it looks so awful when when the wife has traded it all in for you know traded in being what what's truly beautiful and natural being the handmaiden and like hey i'll support you in what you do you're you know you're you're the boss i i'm the co-pilot and i want to help you do what you do and they traded all that in and they're trying to be the 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 disordered boss and the husband is trying to be the co-pilot it it doesn't work and both parties are secretly miserable the the wife's not even attracted to the husband maybe she wanted that power at the outset, but she's not even attracted to the fact that the husband gave into her whimsy so repeatedly. And, uh, and it, it's a, a certain path to hell. I mean, also it's not long after the, um, Apple reference from chapter nine, I believe maybe it was late chapter eight, but I think it's chapter nine though. We did it last week. Remember the original sin of Adam and Eve is proto transgender. Uh, Adam allowing Eve to 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 interface with the serpent. This is his job, and so the original sin is the sin of gender swap, gender bending, uh, feminism, and this is you know the the very chapter after we get the reference to the apple. Uh, so I think it's I think I think C.S. Lewis knows what he's doing. He's a smarty pants. Yeah, it's 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 either that or just really incredible coincidence, which. You can't you can't assume coincidence with things that are that are this deliberate and and uh, well thought out. Um, that you went from the nagging wife to the possessive mother. Here's a great one. Michael is mine. How's yours? You didn't make him. Nature made him to grow in your body without your will. Even against your will, you sometimes forget that you didn't intend to have a baby then at all. Michael was originally an accident, said her spirit that she was paired with. Who told you that, said the ghost, and then recovering itself, it's a lie, it's not true, and it's no business of yours. I hate your religion, and I hate and despise your God. I believe in a God of love. There's that line again. I believe in a God of love, which is really just a credo of psychos. Um, God is whatever pleases me, and that is my religion. That if the, everything I'm doing right now that gr brings me pleasure must be good because it feels 
gratifying. And, um, and I know that God would be on my side and would want me to be happy. So it's, we, we get a lot of that. And wow, wow, these two are something else. Yeah, there's, there's incredible psychology in 11. I think more than 10. 10's just kind of a laugh in the ways you're pointing out the, yeah. the the shrew wife but the there's a more poignancy to the jealous love of the mother of the uh, i guess the not the widowed mother but the mother whose son died um where she says a mother's love is the most pious love in all nature and it, it reminds me of something that I was once told by someone. Um, oh, screw it, I'll say. It was my, my mother-in-law. <laughs> we were living in Rome, and, and Abby had just had her, like, fourth brain surgery. And we were these poor uh, PhD student living in Rome, uh, bashing around the city, having a great time. Then Steph had the baby in, in Rome. And all of a sudden, it became very serious uh, a year into that excursion and the mother-in-law came out there and was as soon as the baby came home from the hospital 29 days in the hospital several brain surgeries my mother-in-law was trying to take control and i said look we heard you out we we're going to go to the coliseum our first day and i said look i'm in charge here you know if and she's like no 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 mother's love is the most pious thing blah blah or mother's intuition i said that's that's all made up that's all hooey like i'm in charge me and Steph are going to talk about this. You need to go over here. And she said, well, I'm going to go home early. I was like, I'll call the airport for you, but you're welcome to stay. We love you. It's just you're not part you're not part of the committee, and I'm the head of the committee. And she got it real fast. She got it really fast. But a mother's love is not the most pious thing in all nature. A father's love is not the most pious thing in all nature. The most the most pious, pure love in, thing in all nature is God's creative, overflowing love for us. And my fatherhood is just a pales in reflection compared to that hmm. and so does so does beautiful's mother love and sometimes if you're a decent family man the way you are and i am being a a good a good father and husband people will overly genuflect to that and they're like oh man there's so many bags. you're amazing it's like yeah it's 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 better by comparison to what some guys do to their families they run around on them and that's really bad, but I don't want to get carried away with you praising this because yeah. of what the angel says to the woman, which is beautiful. Even a tigress has this merely instinctual love, so don't start genuflecting to yourself yet. It's just what right? you're supposed to you do. You have to convert that love. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. it's like, uh, it's just, you don't want to, how much, how many cookies you want to be given uh, for doing what you're just supposed to do. And, exactly. Um, so I understand exactly what you're talking about there. And especially at that point, I mean, what was it? Uh, yeah, the mother's love. Um, I I have a, a entry here from Sharon. And she's writing about chapter 11. And Sharon in the thread says, The motherly ghost didn't know how to love, not her son or daughter, husband, not even God himself. I wondered if she was raised that way herself. It seems so. I really enjoyed reading after McDonald and Lewis walked away from that conversation and started to talk to Lewis about, quote, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it looks from him. That's what McDonald said. Mm -hmm. Good feelings like motherly love, tolerance, and commitment can become corrupted, as with two female ghosts. They see the dark and the oily ghost, and then they see the dark and the oily ghost and the lizard. This is part of the chapter that showed you what had to be done to achieve salvation and enter heaven. The dark and oily ghost had so many excuses mm -hmm. for not wanting the lizard to be killed. And as we get to see, as we learn, the li the red lizard on his shoulder is an example, is a, an embodiment, a personification of his lust. Mm -hmm. And he wanted things to be done more slowly. Wasn't sure yet if he was ready to remove the sin from his life. Even the lizard sensed the, the danger that he was in uh, This, with his whispering words. One must not be deceived by sin's delusions. When the dark and oily ghost finally realizes he would be better off dead than to live with the lizard, he finally gives permission for the angel to kill the lizard despite what might happen to him. He asked God to help him in that moment. Uh, when the ghost thought he would die, 
but instead he was reborn, which was painful and beautiful at the same time. Lewis watched in awe as change began to take place during the dark and oily ghost turn to what would be, we assume a hard one. But he was uh, he was called a man in the book, and the lizard, the ghost's sins, into a beautiful stallion. The man falls into the feet of the uh, falls to the feet of the angel who helped him in gratitude. Then rose with what Lewis thought were tears, but then calls them love, liquid love, and brightness. When he hopped up onto the stallion and began to ride away, the land sang a joyous song. This part, uh, this part of the week's reading was by far the most eye-opening and teachable moment. It spoke volumes to me. Yeah. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have this. Someone sent this to me, uh, Tim, and you got to read it. It's by David G. Clark. It's called C.S. Lewis Goes to Heaven, A Reader's Guide to the Great Divorce. And uh, if it first opens up with a chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown of what's going on there. And here is understanding. I, I had to put this, The Ghost with the Red Lizard. So he turns to Lewis, the ghost of the Red Lizard. The wizard is whispering things into his ear of his host and doesn't stop even when the ghost tells him to. The ghost begins to smile under the onslaught and turns to move away from the mountains. Off so soon, a voice asks, so he pulls him back. But here's the mm -hmm. understanding. Uh, the angel offers to silence the lizard, an offer the ghost gladly accepts, but then has second thoughts after learning the angel plans to silence the lizard by killing it. He had something less drastic in mind. A gradual process should be a, enough to eventually control the lizard. No, the angel insists death is the only way. It must be now, and it will be painful, but it won't kill you. Finally, cursing and protesting, the ghost gives the permission, realizing that even if the angel does kill him, death would be better than living with the lizard on his shoulder the angel sees the lizard and ends its life but to the amazement of lewis it begins to grow until a magnificent horse appears lewis is so transfixed by the sight that he misses out on another transformation quote i should have seen the actual completing of a man an immense man naked not much smaller than the angel falling to the ground the man embraces the feet of the burning one this is a burning angel, and then rises, mounts the horse, and rides away toward the mountains with the speed of a shooting star, which I loved. Um, at last, success. With only two more souls left, Sarah and Frank Smith, a passenger from the gray town finally chooses heaven. The decision is agonizingly difficult and the result painful, but the transformation leaves no doubt that the resulting joy far outweighs any momentary momentary suffering lewis celebrates heaven's victory with a passage from the psalms from the psalms and his conversation with michael or mcdonald i should say yields some important theology that needs a closer look so before we get into the understanding of the complete transformation which i think you would really also appreciate just a couple of paragraphs um thoughts on thoughts on that because we talked about the the women obviously it leads to two more ghosts just being zapped out of existence and going back to the gray town but finally we have a victory what was that like yeah i i, I had to check my memory and think oh is this the first victory and it was um it reminded me how near we are to the end of the book. I, I'm half of me was expecting to go week by week, and next week's our last week. So, yeah, it it follows on the heels of a few passages in the first part of the chapter with regard to the the mother's love, where Lewis says he he, he there's a definite order with which he's proceeding because uh, at the end of that first half of the chapter, he says something like there's something specially noxious or insidious in the deification of natural affection. Whereas if, um, if it's unconverted, whereas um, it's easier to lie to yourself about unconverted natural affection for a son. And that can drag you to hell more insidiously than um, giving in to the lower instincts, deification of the lower instincts. And they they really always mean lust. You know, Aristotelians would say taste and touch. Because no one, anyone, you talk to young men that are like addicted to porn, whatever the 95 plus percent of them that are allegedly addicted to porn, no one's really lying to themselves about it. There's self-rationalization that goes on to perpetuate the process. But no one thinks it's pretty everyone knows this is evil an evil that was foisted on society by 
an evil agency. And so so then we're chasing that with the the red lizard of lust that argues with the man on his shoulder and you're like what what is going on here? I know. And it took me a little I, while. I didn't, it took me a, a while to figure out what it was. I thought, oh, is this Satan at first? I thought it was like a a, a lizard was like a dragon. Yeah, I was like, was how Satan. the hell? How did Satan get in? He get out. How did he even get in here? You know, <laughs> you, you know. Yeah. And then I realized it's the metaphor. Right, because can I kill it? Uh, recently had something that I'd always kind of thought I never would have, which is an experience with. Uh, Actually, a friend who's a demoniac, and so we've we've gotten involved with some exorcists and stuff. Uh, and it's it's like it's weird because this seems satanic when the angel, the burning angel, is saying, "Can I kill it?" And the guy's making up excuses. This is what demoniacs will do for avoiding exorcisms, and it's weird because it's a mixture of agencies. So. Um, it, it was very interesting when you get to the as we wind our way up to the success story when the guy finally allows the angel to kill it. He says, "Why didn't you just kill it without asking me? Just go ahead and do it. If that's what's best for me, then fine." That's I think when he said that. That was the inflection point where I realized, "Are we going to get an, a success story?" Where he's like, "Dude, if you would have just done it, I'd be free by now." And then he follows that psychology through, the way you'd hope he would, and he'd say, "Okay, fine, just do it." Um, it's like zapping, it's like ripping a Band-Aid off or something. And the angel says, I need your permission. This is all your will, your intellect. And then he kills it and all that stuff happens. So, I, I yeah, it made me really happy. And it was an inflection point in the book probably because it's about done. Um, Jerry in the chat room just says, uh, is it clear that the lizard is only is only representing lust itself or because uh, I just thought of it as the general burden of the man's sins? And I can see how that can work in both ways. Uh, he does get specific. He uses the word lust specifically in these in these uh, in the prose. But um, but I, I can also see how it's also a, a, a general unburdening of a lot of different things. Because of course, you know, lust, greed, envy—I mean, it's all very covetous kind of uh, behavior, and 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 that can be spread about, spread out across many um, many different avenues, not just uh, sexual or, as you said, uh, taste and touch. It could be a lot of different things. Um, uh, so yeah, that, I, I, Jerry, I, I don't think it would be it would be a stretch to even generalize a little bit there too. I think the point is that we finally had a ghost that was willing to take the leap and do what must be done to actually free themselves of what was harming them. And here is here is the understanding complete transformation uh, section of this book. Uh, C.S. Lewis goes to heaven. Uh, McDonald asks Lewis if he has understood what he has seen and emphasizes that when he reports the encounter, he must remember that the lizard became a horse only after it had been killed. But Lewis isn't sure he grasps the implication of the transformation. That something as base as lust could be changed would suggest that every part of a person can go to heaven, even including the body and its appetites. Could that actually be true? Yes, come the uh, comes the answer. Even the body will be changed. Here's a quote. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's from page 102. Lewis is quoting from 1 Corinthians 1544. But MacDonald cautions him. There is only one unavoidable way. Quote, flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains. End quote. But God has not rejected the body. Quote, nothing even uh, nothing even what is lowest and most bestial will not be raised again if it submits to death. Lust, the lizard, is a poor, weak, whimpering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed, end quote. Which I, which I just thought it was great. And that's why, Jerry, I think it, he was speaking a little bit more directly to lust. Though I, um, but there's a little bit more here. Uh, this is a significant change of focus. For the first time, the conversation between Lewis and MacDonald moves outside the context of the dream. Lewis has been con concerned with the purification of the soul during the time between death of the body and its resurrection. But now the conversation moves to flesh and blood, which is the biblical way of referring to the physical body. 
Lewis turns to the New Testament to emphasize to his readers that even the body must be transformed. Paul emphatically made this point when he wrote to the church at Corinth, where, there, uh, where some did not believe that God would literally resurrect human bodies. He certainly will, Paul reminds them, but they will not be the same bodies as they were. Mortal bodies will be raised up and transformed into immortal bodies. Bodies that were physical in nature will be given a spiritual nature. Then these will be able to come to the mountains, that is, into heaven. So MacDonald, in effect, tells Lewis there are two problems with humans. The first is sin, and the other is just being natural. What is natural is not sinful, but it belongs to the natural world, not heaven. The natural cannot bear the weight of glory that shall be revealed in heaven. All that is natural must be transformed. And where is your body now, is the quote. Didn't you know that nature draws to an end? Reginald asks his sister Pam on page 94. So uh, thoughts on that before we get to these last two paragraphs on what heaven's celebration in this chapter is all about. Uh, no, that, that, that was really good, if you're asking me. I mean, I think uh, we talked a little bit. I thought it might be a sidetrack when I made the remark, but we were talking about heavenly bodies after the general resurrection in the first session, and it's it's funny that it, it, it um, is getting alluded to here. You know, I, I was always wondered about that. It was one question I was going to ask you about just in general when you come when you come on to the show next or whenever you do come on to a show and, and this is the, the topic that I had set up. Um, and, and that was always about the physical resurrection. And, I mean, the resurrection of the body, uh, th- that's in the Apostles' Creed. And I yeah. always wondered about that, too, because obviously uh if you've been dead more than a few months you are your body is unrecognizable you're you're going to skeleton land uh many people have been cremated their dust there's just what so i always wondered is it just a recreation or are 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 you is whatever was left of you what i mean do you have any insight on what that resurrection of the body means when there's when obviously the physical body is destroyed just through the passage of time yeah, one Peter five had an article last week that that pissed some people off. It was about um, no, it's called your heavenly body, and it's along the order of the new creation. But it will be you. It will. Uh, remember, um, it, it's actually quite technical uh, to be a person. To, to be to be one of the three divine persons is uh, to be an uncreated person. The three persons of the Trinity. To be one of the angels is to be a rational, well, what's Boethius's definition? If you're an angel, angels don't have bodies. They're just the intelligences. Uh, matter is the principle of individuation in uh, the rational animal. That's us. We're the one thing that has a body that has a rational nature. Angels are pure intellect. They don't, they're not, they're not God. They are created things but they're created form alone there's no form and matter admixture so the angels can only be differentiated one from another not as different species of the same genus so thomas talks about the michaelity of michelangelo and the gabrielity of gabriel gabriel there they can't be species of a genus because they don't have bodies mm. and the uh, matter is the principle of individuation so the point is human beings are personal and we're personal in a bodily way. The we will be differentiated one from another by our heavenly bodies after the general resurrection, which is which is always a comfort to me. But it'll be a perfect version of this body. And um, the one Peter five article that came out last week that made some some I guess uh, fatso's angry is that no one will be fat in heaven. It'll be a perfect version of your face, a perfect version of your body. And uh, I guess this isn't what I've studied in Aquinas, but I guess Aquinas wrote this somewhere. Um, It makes sense, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny. (laughs) That's it. Nobody's going to be fat. Finally. It only it, it only took forever, but finally we're eventually we'll shed those pounds. All right, so here's the last thing because the celebration was something else. Yeah, uh, Lewis then struggles with the fact that the man's lust was less than an obstacle to divine grace than the excessive love of Pam for her son. Okay, but McDonald corrects him, saying that she loved her son too little. 
not too much. Right. Yes, right. yes, he continues, uh, mother love is greater than lust, but that also means its corruption is greater than lust as well. And yet if a weak thing like lust became, became such a glorious stallion, what would the risen form of maternal love have been? That's incredible. Beautiful. Incredible. Yes. Goosebumps. Uh, I, hell yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm feeling them all over right now. Um, yeah. I really recommend people get this book because, Tim, I, I, this is like page 55 and it gets you through all the last chapters and then everything else is, is, is even more up your alley. Uh, it is all, um, it's all appendixes of not only summaries of chapters but biblical references, philosophical references, all those little uh, Easter eggs that C.S. Lewis drops in there from you know past works of great you know uh galaxy brain minds of the past and uh, i'm sure aristotle's in here too but uh as a chapter by chapter breakdown it's it's been helpful for me and the last thing he says is as the transformed man rides away on on his horse instead of the lizard riding on him the very landscape celebrates heaven's success the only victory lewis sees in his dream the song of the rejoicing elements proves to be lewis's paraphrasing of the first four verses of psalm 110 jesus applied this uh this psalm to himself in debate with the pharisees in matthew 22 41 to 46 but here lewis uses it to describe heaven's power to transform a sinful nature and the desire of the soul to be transformed lewis enjoyed using his poetic gifts to re uh, restate scriptures into modern language as the following comparison illustrates so um there you uh there you have it uh, the celebration was certainly uh incredible yeah that he didn't know where the sound was coming from it was all around i i guess that means that this will be the only Spoiler alert, this will be the only success in the whole book or something. But I, I need to get that. But when you texted it to me, I I said, I'm going to go get that. And I forgot to Amazon it. I'm going to do it tonight, yep. right after we get off before I forget. David um, G. Clark, C.S. Lewis Goes to Heaven, A Reader's Guide for the Great Divorce. Um, so, uh, yes, I just put that up on in front. So if your viewers and mine wanted to go and add that to their library, I think it's a fantastic accompaniment for this this read i was uh, there, there you mentioned like two really interesting things that i had what i thought were half decent comments about but i just i just lost it the um yeah what do we say L lust is less likely to be made into a religion that that's that's interesting um he says uh, keats was uh uh, uncertain of the holiness of the heart's affections, or he's uncertain of Keats's certainty of the holiness of the heart's affections. I mean, there's something about the conversion of a mother's love that um, it's naturally beautiful, but it's easy to paganize. I guess we already talked about this, but you get goosebumps thinking about a mother, uh, you know, a, a saintly mother's love, like Saint Monica. I, I mean, or the greatest of all saints is uh, the Blessed Virgin, and that the divinized form of a mother's love is like literally the the most power powerful thing on her or, or, or a father's love. But I mean, you think of who is the one that will stomp on the serpent? It is Our Lady, according to the Book of Revelation. But also, just like. St. Augustine, back when he was a scumbag before he was converted, his his holy mother, Monica's committed love for him. She didn't want him just to be around her. She wanted him to go to heaven. And the beautiful thing is um, when uh, what's the character's name? Lewis? I didn't catch that, actually. That, uh, no, that I, you know, I don't know what, what the, the, the character's name is. I just know that when he's speaking, this is all from his his perspective and i don't know if he's been given uh, if he has been given a name i don't know um I, and, and i it hasn't stuck with me if so but lou uh, uh david and david g clark who wrote this guide is just really referring to the the first person omniscient perspective as uh as lewis it's because i guess it's just his dream or something hmm. well when he talks about I mean, this is almost this is a very basic way of parsing 
the question, but I think I found I found it very helpful that when um, I mean God, God is love, right? This isn't actually just for James Martin S.J. or or, or liberal Catholics or anything. It's it's a real liberal Christians in general. It's a real concept in the Joannean literature and John. But if you take it the wrong direction, then all of a sudden you're you're, you're paganizing things. It's a really nice heuristic for for parsing the question you think in a middle school sense oh my friends are just the people i want them to be with me i remember getting our class lists in catholic school between me and my best friend i'm like i I wish we had every single class together me and my buddy chris and it's like that's that's friendship that's that's brotherly love and and so folks assume that this lady if she if she sides with her unconverted mother's love well, that's there's still something beautiful about that. She's going to hell. She wants her son with her. I love how the angel, the burning angel, says, well, you would be gnashing at each other. You would be hating each other. All the souls in hell hate one another. Hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not like, oh, we're at least in this together. There's none of that. That's all dead. The souls in paradise all love one another. The souls in hell all hate one another. So I just thought it was a really stark way of nipping at, snuffing out that... Um, Jejun, still lingering middle school notion of you know loving your friend is just wanting to be around them or be with them. It's it's really not true. That's unconverted love. I, I'm I'm starting to understand that concept. Unconverted love and and that last that last piece about the stacking up lust and maternal love, freeing one oneself and you know shooting off on a stallion that was once the lizard that was keeping you down and what converted maternal love coming from the right place would translate into if oh man that because then you start looking at this you start looking at the power you look start looking at love as really look at a, a, a power center like it is a uh, it's an incredible atomic energy it is so powerful um, incredibly powerful and then when you start getting it put into scale already everything is on a massive scale in this book because you're beyond earth and you're you're talking about the infinity that is the the here the the after the afterlife the infinity that was hell um, where you know to, to to travel to the bus stop from some places where people were is he's he was talking about millions of miles I mean that's an incredible it's too much for the the mind to fathom so already we're we're dealing with in this book things that are on an incredibly gargantuan scale and then to be able to see that the the coupling of that with concepts of love are hand in hand and, and, and they actually act as power couplings for all types of transformation and even that is put to scale again so i i it is it's a little overwhelming. I think that's where the the goosebumps come from, and in whatever, whatever very basic ways we can be discussing them. But um, yeah, that that that's what I'm getting at this point in the book, with only a couple of chapters left. Um, if you don't have anything else to add to that, Timothy, I'd like to read a couple more um, uh, entries over here on the thread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. I think I, I'm formulating something now, but I, I'll do it after that. Okay. Yeah. Well, feel free to you know, scribble whatever you want on with your pen, and so you don't lose it. Um, yeah. Robert says parts of this book affect me. My ex-wife is going through her second bout with cancer in two years. Our daughter's relationship with her is tumultuous. I understand the bright spirit when he says an accident, instinctive love, uncontrolled, fierce, and monomaniac. Uh, but, quote, does their love make them happy? Nothing can be yours by nature. These are all little tiny quotes. Nothing can be yours by nature. And finally, don't you know that you can't hurt anyone in this country? And Robert ends by saying, I'm longing for such a place. Uh, that's that's another thing that is very uh, very real about having these these reads they they affect you in different ways and depending on who the reader is and what's going on in their lives at the same time this is it's never the same experience and obviously i'm going to keep robert and his whole family in my prayers tonight but yeah. um it's a that i i know what you're talking about robert don't you know that you can't hurt anyone in this place i have taken 
such great comfort in some of the lines in here. Just when I try on those those thoughts as just like a blanket, I just try yeah. it on for size, and then just for the moment, I'm like, oh, you're right. It is. Um, oh yes, let let this be. Yeah. Th- uh, moreover, the next line after, don't you know that nothing that you can't hurt anyone in this place is even more powerful, but in a, in a less inspiring way. He says of all the bad news that the angel, the burning angel was delivering to the mom. She didn't like any of it, but that was the most disappointing thing to her already betraying the hellish spirit that's animating her. That, that was really powerful that she was mad about everything else, but she was really mad that she couldn't hurt anyone. So there's already the demoniac spirit, uh, manifesting, um, Finally, Robert, I would just say it is funny how in different moods or different seasons of life, different bits of, of fine literature hit you differently. One, one really strong example is after all the ordeal we went through in Italy for the next few years of Abby's young, our, our eldest daughter's young life, we, my wife and I would, we rewatch uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy a few times a year. We couldn't make it through about halfway through Fellowship of the Ring where, um, Frodo is talking to Gandalf and he's like, I wish the ring had never come to me. He's like, well, so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for you to decide. All that's for you to decide is what to do at the time that's given you. We would always tear up because what we, we, this is how we felt with young Abby, you know, our eldest daughter. And it's like, we watched this a few months ago and I I had nothing, you know, Abby's uh, 14, 15 now and just healthy. Uh, He hasn't had a brain surgery in three years. So we're like, this is just, Man, I remember when this really hit me in my feels, and uh, yeah. you almost miss it—the poignant pain that comes with it. So, yeah, stick, stick, stick with it, bro. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll pray for you and your wife and your daughter as well. It's amazing how how season to season will affect the whole phenomenological outlook when you read literature. Yes, yes, it it always does. And and if you and if you do have a situation where some of that literature has been um, adapted for a screen in, in an honest and uh, in, in good way, that makes it even better to sit back and watch a, a film that really pays homage to the source material and does a good job. I think Lord of the Rings is, is an example of something that uh, that really, really touched the core of what uh, Tolkien was going for, for example. Um, but... Yeah, uh, not not the Amazon or whatever the hell just came out right now that got panned. I didn't even watch it. I didn't even no. watch anything. Uh, let's I, I tried to make it through one. It was it was rubbish. It was rubbish. It was utterly dechristianized. Yeah, Peter Jackson made that thing without dechristianizing the the genius of C.S. Lewis' best friend's work. It was yeah. It's it's yeah. We gotta you know that would be a wonderful book club. But that would take Dude. a long time. You know, those books are a quicker read than they seem. I mean, we, we watched the extended version movies, and they're each about four hours, the extended version movies. So you think the books are massive. I've only read them all the way through three times. But that would be amazing. We also need to do a Brothers Karamazov from Dostoevsky, the great one. Um, it, we, need to do, we need to do a book club for Brothers K., and we need to do an LOTR book club. Those are the okay the, the novels of my life. Well, it, then then we should plan ahead in doing Lord of the Rings next next year. Okay, like we should yeah. do, we should we should start off with January twenty twenty four. We should start Lord of the Rings right out of the gate, so I can I can plan the whole year around how long it's going to take us to get through that because All right, um, bro. we have to do it. That'd be so good. That uh, I I think that would be. I think that would be the best yet because it's so epic. Have okay. you ever read them? You've read them, Never. right? Never. It'll be oh. my, it'll be my first time. I can't wait now. Okay, we're doing it. We're doing it. Twenty twenty four will be the year of that trilogy. But we also have to do Brothers K. Okay, that's that's the greatest novel of all time. No doubt. I I, I another one I have not read, so I'll that'll be great. These 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 are my heart. I mean, LOTR is more fun and and deep, but but Brothers K. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, I, I'm always cross. I mean, I was doing this a lot with Windswept House. I'm always cross mojinating genre, even fiction genre to genre, but I like doing it. And all I was going to say with the, the powerful natural love of the unconverted mother or the unconverted natural love, 
that's beautiful but clearly unconverted, it always makes me think of a female performance that really always hit me in my feels <laughs> was um, Joyce Byers in Stranger Things mm -hmm. and really beautifully portrayed. But there are some lines, particularly in the later seasons of Stranger Things, where she sounds a lot like this mother. She's She's got an anger. It doesn't show up in one. It's just beautiful, natural love. But it's a it's it's powerful i'm always like man who wouldn't want a, a mother like joyce byers that really goes all the way to the wall for them but it's strictly natural it's strictly instinctual like a lioness imagine the goosebumps when you um when you consider joyce byers doing anything for her son not caring about look looking crazy um if you gave superman brass knuckles you know if you 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 super um potentize that love by converting it the 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 source of love the logos the charity that is christ uh it would be amazing i think you're the one that pointed out in a, a show or a book club we did on stranger things you're like bro they never mention yeah demons are real and all this stuff that's going on is real but there's a real solution to it and they will never mention jesus and that that made me think of joyce and the fact that she she could be this powerful lover of her son will but without it it's all for naught in the end. Yeah. Absolutely. And and, and that that's a very important part is the point of the um the stranger things uh, uh the the way I I started seeing it and how it really reflects a lot of modern media and storytelling where they love going to those dark places that there's something big and demonic and interdimensional and 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 hulking and e purely evil that wants nothing but to do but consume and to damn and to possess. It's not even just to kill your body, to possess your soul. So this is a monstrous thing. And in all of these shows, as much as I love the, the, the stories and the suspense that builds up and, and the character development to a degree, um, they go out of their way to make sure that there is never any counterbalance to this eternal soul-sucking evil except the will of a uh, few teenage kids in in indiana that uh that i i don't know it's like that that's it there's no other counterbalance there, there was only the evil there was nothing that created the you know and 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 of course jesus christ is only is only every other curse that is used in the in the uh, in the in the the uh, the series, Jesus Christ, yes. every, every every other line, the kids are are just you know using it as an uh, a phrase of exasperation. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, you know, you might actually want to help. Ask him for some help right yeah. now. You got these demons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. No, no, no joke. That's so. And it was it Atlee and Childs or someone that, that Australian guy that said explicitly look i've been to hollywood this is their worst curse because they're well we know who they are making the movie that, that's a great such a great point and and steph says it every we love stranger things one so much and we're we're big time rewatchers. but it, my ears feel like they're bleeding you know the most I, i'm sorry to be extra genre but okay. the most the, the the apotheosis in terms of examples of what the phenomenon you just described the most comfortless uh, version of the demonic without any response or rejoinder by God who has the last word that I've ever seen in a film, the most evil film I've ever seen. People don't watch it. There's actual curses in this thing. The way the Puritans were saying about Harry Potter is hereditary. That movie is so evil and it's just like a cult film and it's, it's, it's all the demonic stuff, pure Satanism with real satanic words without an answer uh that's why you read lord of the rings and it's the exact opposite it is catholic literature in the finest not allegory it's so secretly encoded the christology and stuff in lord of the rings that it's so not cheesy can't be christian christian literature is always crap but lord of the rings is so good that it even got by the gatekeepers in hollywood so ah. it is the ultimate opposite of that see there you go. I, I with that kind of perspective, I can't wait to read it all. And I'm going to have such a better uh, reading environment at my at my house uh, by uh, even middle of this year. Doing a lot of lot of just 
making things different, the home studio and everything. I, I just want to be able to make sure that all my books are finally out on a on a, on multiple shelves and accessible again. And I want to be able to read and just dive deep into all this. And I know it'll enrich all of our broadcasting schedules too. Um, as far as the next week, uh, well, there's a few more things here. It's 940. Uh, real quick, I'm going to go through a, a couple of, because we did this, it's only two chapters. We did it very well. Um, and the the assignment for next week is finish the book. Xanary talks about, yes, the disturbing character of the micromanager. It also brings uh, to mind what is discussed on this show very often, the emerging hellish nightmare of the surveillance state where a handful of elitists know it all and are attempting to micromanage every aspect of our lives. If one were to accept this way of life, I can see it not only leading to a version of hell here on earth, but down a path that could send one to hell for eternity because it separates us from God. Uh, we would be worshiping the beast system in place of God. Big Brother knows best. Well, that's this is a big part of what tonight's show was about quite frankly um what is being done what is being taken away from children and the children don't know what the kind of psychosis that is being beaten into children with all you know the the gender ideology and identity crisis and all that other stuff it inherently kills the joy that yeah. link that that unbridled link that they have with the divine it kills that joy and also uh, creates a uh, creates a, pretty much a, a blockade from them really having an easy time of finding it again and being able to understand where it came from. And that could be the path to hell. And yes, it could be a path that you set somebody else on. But um, yeah, that's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of that in here. Uh, Smoky Oki, chapter 11, again, talking about the appetite uh, if you you must ask if the risen body even an appetite as grand as a horse for lust what would the risen body of maternal love or friendship be incredible Ch uh, uh, NJSF sends over more uh, from chapter 10 and 11 there's a lot in there good comments on these general takeaway from Sully Chapter 10, the woman is consumed with control. She played her husband's life like he was a marionette. Chapter 11, mother who turns a weapon against everyone she uh, turns into a lo love, into a weapon against everyone she lives with. Her son was taken from her, so she must take everyone else's life too. Not only did that son die and go to a better place, but all those around her weren't allowed to go on. She turned all their lives into purgatory, suspended forever in the grief that she called love. She would rather be in her twisted view of love than in the love of God. Um, there's more here. I don't know if there's anything that you know came directly from some of your, some of your audience members, Tim, but... Um, I think everybody got it. I think everybody really got it. Yeah, there wasn't anything that jumped out at me. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm honestly struck. Each of these weeks, these three weeks, uh, were well, really the last one and this one about the the profundity of the comments. So, so good, good comments. It's, it's been more valuable to to start reading these last week and this week than I would tend to to characterize it. So I, good, good, deep readings, people. I think the book, all this book in particular, allows us to do that more windswept house obviously we made time at the end of every session to get into the comments and 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 get the audience and our book clubbers involved but um that was so dense and so history we're talking about hidden history we're talking about cloak and dagger stuff um uh it's also a pretty much a a murder mystery in many ways there's just it's so much so i want to thank kate katie sky and sylvia NJSF, few others that I haven't been able to read from. Please, ladies and gentlemen, get into this thread. It's going to be there uh, for posterity reasons. Um, comment on each other's stuff. Talk with each other and and get ready for session four to be posted there by hopefully tomorrow or the day after. Um, Tim, anything you want to leave off with tonight? I, a lot has been said, and we had some great um, uh you know, peripheral conversations that I really enjoy. I'm already excited about the idea of reading Lord of the Rings in 2024, but uh, anything else you got for us, go right ahead and, and be sure to plug what you got going on today, tomorrow, and the next day. 
uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm just really excited about the Lord of the Rings. I think with, the, <laughs> with our group, it's uh, it's going to be amazing. And I, I'm on also honored to read it with you for the first time. And there's there I can I can really really take a a, a literary bent. So with with LOTR, so uh, that's really exciting. I there's one point tonight when you said in the last week, and I think you were talking about just since we read, and I started thinking you were going to comment about the strangeness of the last week in history, in real time, that we're confronting. It's just, whether we're talking great divorce or windswept house, the last week alone has had so much Malachi Martin quickening. Remember, he calls that the quickening. Mm -hmm. Huge news. You're covering huge Russia news. The Pope has had about five stories that are huge uh, in, a, in a negative way. It feels anti-Christic. Uh, there's huge Pfizer news right when you were doing your show, Frank. There's like three other huge newses this week that I thought about. I was like, this would have made the year's news back when we were teenagers, when stuff was slow. My parents would have Fox News on any of these, and it's happening two stories per day now, three stories per day. I, I can't acknowledge how starkly this comports with what Malachi Martin said would happen. And it's just, it's, it's, it's such strange times we live in because it is not impossible that it's end times. But I, I thought that's where you're going with it and you didn't. And it's just, well, it's good to be doing these book clubs in this time, particularly with you, man. Yes, yes. And it just so happens that the books that, uh, that, that are, have only really been chosen because they are cool uh, and uh, we thought that, oh, that instinctually, we hey, this would be a fun read or it's something we haven't read. I always wanted to, blah, blah, blah. And then we realize that there is something so much more meaningful about the reasons why we may have been drawn to these books right now. Because um, I, if you think about it, and this is the most heavy thing that has struck me in the last couple of weeks, especially the last couple of days. My um, my general thoughts about chapter 10 and 11 were about once again, here is a um, here is a journey where we are being in we're being encouraged to really look inside and and have that really uncomfortable self-reflection and that heaven is a place where there needs to be a little bit of a delousing going on before you you, you step on in here. But when you start talking about nuclear war, when you start talking about transhumanist end times, when you start talking about and, uh, you know, surveillance programs, all the worst parts of every dystopian book stacked on top of each other, it right. really is one of those things that tells you, yeah, there's going to be fights and battles that we're going to have to pick and choose in on earth for the time that we're alive, especially for the sake of our children and for the sake of just being on the right side of something that is morally, morally in line with, you know, being a decent human being. Um, but you also need to prepare your soul. You, I, I think that there is no, there's no mistaken right now that we are being encouraged to take account of what's going on in our hearts and in our minds and our soul, because it, it, this can go to an extinction level so quickly. And for us to have read Windswept House to see the groundwork of this new world order being built up that is supposed to encompass and swallow up all things economic, geopolitical, and faith-based. And now to see all of that pretty much being established where all the masks are off at places like Davos. They don't care who knows anymore where we're going. In uh, seven short years, Tim, 2030 is seven short years. I don't know what kind of derailing could happen. Everybody's plans has to change from time to time, even these demons. But, se but, se but seven years is not a long time. It's less than two presidential cycles. And I, I think that between the last book we read and this one, we're being shown how it's all happened and how even though we still have things to do, we need to prepare our souls in some way. And, uh, and we're, we're the, the mirror is being held up to us to make sure that we know that there's a lot more work than we think and that everything that, is, that, uh, that, doesn't, everything that shines inside of us is not gold and maybe needs to be reexamined. 
It's perfect. I I agree 100% of that and couldn't say anything to improve it. What you can do, what you had said to kick this little rant off before about the things that were happening every week, make sure you go back and you watch this, write it all down, and if we do a segment together on, quite frankly, on Friday night, we can just do a world... I don't know, a world coming down roundup, and then we can jump into the Benedict book and everything else, and we can just talk Malachi Martin and, and, and all that. Let's just wrap that all up on a, on a Friday night. Okay. Sounds right. good, man. All right. Well, Timothy Gordon, uh, Frankie Val over here, quite frankly, and Rules for Retrogrades, another great night. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And um, and next week we, we cap this one off, and that's the end of the first book of 2023. Uh, Tim, thanks for everything. We will talk soon and send my best to Steph. Thanks, Frank. You too. Say hi to the wife and kid for us. I'm going to do that as soon as I get home. All right, everybody. Have a good one. Take care.